Welcome to the Second Age Podcast, your guide to Tolkien's Middle-earth. I'm David. I'm John. And I'm Aaron. Aaron, OG Lorehounds. Um, <laughs> and welcome to the feedback episode for the Second Age Podcast. In this episode, we, we actually have four segments for everybody. We've got some general chatter about the state of the rings of power. Uh, we have our listener ma- mailbag, and it is full, and we got a lot of really great questions. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Rings of Power coverage, how we're going to uh, cover that once the season starts, and then what's next for the Lorehounds. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit. And then we have a very special interview that we're going to tack on to the end of this podcast with Marilyn R. Pukila, who is a librarian emeritus. And she used to teach Tolkien, and she wrote in. And uh, we just liked her content so much that I ended up recording a 20-minute interview with her, and we're going to throw that on to the end of this. So... As a reminder, please, please, please like, rate, and review. Hate to have to always do that, but it really does help us in the long run. Um, also, make sure to sub to Doug Too Deep or and or the Lorehounds feed because we're going to have future shows just on the Lorehounds. Um, and join us on the Discord server at baldmove.com. You can join the Discord server. We've got two channels there to talk about Lord of the Rings in general and Rings of Power in specific. John and I will be there uh, most of the time. Oh, and John, do you want to set up what we've got going on for next Thursday? Next Thursday, we're going to be doing an instant talk, sort of an instant take, instant talk combination uh, on our Discord server at 11.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to be using the Discord stage feature, which if you've used Twitter Spaces, it's basically the same thing, but on Discord. So definitely get on the Bald Move Discord server. There will be an event that'll ping you and remind you to come on by and uh, come in, join us, ask some questions, and let's get chatting. Yeah. All right. Uh, Aaron, this is the Super Bowl of fantasy. You guys have been killing it on the coverage of House of the Dragon. Now we've got Rings of Power starting up. How are you feeling? How are things going? What are you you feeling uh, about Rings of Power? Uh, I feel like the first team has kicked off and it's it's strong. And now the other team's got the ball and we're about to see uh, what they can do with it because... uh, I guess that was my biggest fear is that like we'd have all this awesome fantasy and they'd both be lame. But with every <laughs> mm-hmm. trailer you see, it's like this feels a little bit more solid. And, you know, House of Dragons came out with I think is a pretty strong start. And uh, I it's good. It's good to be a fantasy fan. I really hope this is a week to week duking it out uh, where you get your your high fantasy and your low fantasy fix. And um, I haven't like that's the other thing is. Amazon's going crazy with the promo. They are really <laughs> like, you can't even buy a roll of toilet paper on Amazon.com without having Gladrail in your face uh, with her ring of power. Like it's take care of your, your ring of power with sharp. No, I, it, I've never seen a blitz like this. You can't, if you turn on the TV, you turn on a smart TV, you, t- you go to the movies, you buy something, on Amazon, you are getting this put in your face. And I think it's great. I was taking my uh, daughter to camp. We're um, visiting in New York uh, for this week and taking care of some family business. And we were jumping on the subway today and they have these digital ad um, billboard things on the mm-hmm. platforms now. And boom, there was uh, Duran the Fourth staring back at me and then later uh, Galadriel. And I was just like, what is going on with this advertising? 
Yeah, it's it's really it's it's really nuts. I'm glad they're doing it. I'm glad they're pumping all this this interest to it. I mean, they've clearly spent a lot of money and they're banking a lot on this, and they I think they think it's good. So I'm I'm excited, I, and that's what I'm my my best hope is like we get to the end of October and we're like having a vigorous debate within the communities who did it better, you know? And it's a it's a true like like uh, reasoned debate instead of like a one sided schlacking or neither side showed up. And I don't think that's going to happen. I. I, did we get another trailer this week? Because I don't. Yes. So I haven't even seen the latest trailer because <laughs> I've been uh, hot and heavy on House of the Dragon. Wow! Wow! That's so. That's crazy. We recorded a. Uh, we used the the Discord spaces the other day, and John and I did a trailer breakdown, and we're gonna re- that should be releasing like any moment now onto the feeds. Uh, we did a thing too where we found a whole bunch of YouTube uh, fanfic videos, and I did like a mini reviews of all of those. So we smushed those two pieces together, and then that should be hitting the Dug Too Deep and Lorehounds feeds as we're recording this. Actually, so yeah. And I got to say, I thank thank you guys so much for doing this heavy lore lifting because this has been so invaluable for me in the last week or two. I've been listening to all of your lead up podcast. And you guys, when you approached us with this idea and you had like the first episode ready to go and outlines for more, it's like in the back of my mind, you're thinking, you know, it's like uh, the first album is a sophomore one going to be as good. But like, honestly, I think these outlines have been super strong. I love the peek at Tolkien and his family, including Christopher, and then paired with a deep dive into the lore and with the thematic. You guys have really been crushing it. Uh, Again, I don't know that I know 100% gun to my head the differences between all the elves and when they (laughs) saw light and when they crossed mountains and which shores that... But like... I think you're... Like like you even mentioned in that podcast that like the important thing is to know that there are differences and there you know are viewpoints and conflicts and and things between even the elves that you need to be aware of it's not like they're not like a monolith and it's been super helpful and, and very entertaining yeah i put a lot of that on john john is really the uh for lord of the ring stuff his lore knowledge is is up there uh, and and we've even been complimented by uh, some people i'm not to toot our horns too much but uh yeah toot it's, it's been amazing john thoughts feelings thoughts reactions ideas so in october when this all wraps up i think that we should just get into a cage with maester anthony and steve and just <laughs> fight them <laughs> and bald move can ref and we can just settle this fantasy debate for good is, is jim gonna be sitting up there in the king's chair with uh yeah he'll with be his hound yeah he'll be introducing the tournament and uh i'll be yeah 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 i I like where this is going (laughs) and we'll do some jousting and then like when we're wounded laying uh, broken on the battlefield uh aaron can come in and finish us off that's the problem is you guys can't ever be defeated you just go through the halls of mandos um, where like they're they're permadeath in westeros it seems unless you got a unless you got a lord of the light running around bringing people back (laughs) <laughs> so talking about the Amazon flooding the zone, uh, I, we were chatting on the Discord today with a few folks, and I didn't realize this. I, there, apparently there was a, a gala premiere here in New York, and I had seen some news that they had done one in Mexico City and Mumbai, and then somebody mm. else said that they did L.A. and London as well. So that's like five major cities where they did red carpet galas wow. on a global scale. Not we're not just talking about a North American audience here. Mexico City and Mumbai are huge markets. Really going for global with us. They're also doing a partnership with Cinemark where you could have gotten tickets in some kind of like 
wait on their line and get last minute tickets in a raffle uh, for the 31st. You're screening in like theaters across the country the day before it premieres. So they really, they really want everyone to see this thing. Yeah. It's too bad Jeff didn't throw even a fraction of this at the expanse. Yeah. Yeah. That's your face a, just wins to Aaron. That's a sore spot. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it might be as like, I, I, I um, cause that's the thing. It's like, I wonder if the expanse was an Amazon prime studios production, mm. if it had been different, like it feels yeah. like, yeah, there weren't a lot of people inside Amazon that were pulling for that show in a way that like, it feels like everyone in Amazon is pulling for this one. Uh, I think Sony is making a the show though for rings of power. Is it really? Yeah, I, well, then, yeah, I'm 99% sure. I think that Amazon is just like, nope, this is going to make us money. Expanse is fun. That's Bezos's. Is- I felt like they, they must, the, 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 the season four must have really, you know, because I, I felt like they did kind of do a good amount of inter- advertisement for it, but I don't know. Like, nah, I'm still salty about it. No merch, no real promo ever. They just kind of throw it out there and in, in the shove, like, in no one releases stuff at Christmas time. In the last two seasons, that's when they've been dumping it. So, uh, Anyway, yeah, but bygones. We got we got the elves and the hobbits, and they're getting the love that they deserve. Cool. Um, any other thoughts or ideas, or are you guys ready to jump into our listener feedback? I'm curious to see what people had to say. Yeah, we got a lot of a lot of great feedback. We're uh, really um, a lot of good conversations happening on the Discord, sort of in uh, in parallel to all this. Um, if you want. Even while the show is running, we're going to be here. We're going to be answering lore questions. Uh, so write in to secondage at baldmove.com uh, or hit us on the Discord. Uh, either way, we can scrape up all that information. But to kick us off, we have Peter S., who uh, messaged, messaged us on Twitter, and you can follow us at the Lorehounds. He says, do you think that we might see the first age battle with Morgoth in any of the flashbacks? Yeah, so I was looking into this. I I don't think they're going to do it in any level of detail because of a rights issue, which they don't have the rights to most of the first stage. But um, I think that we're going to see some kind of uh, conflict between Finrod and Sauron. Finrod is Galadriel's brother. Galadriel, sorry, pronunciation. That's one of our <laughs> feedback items. We have to be better about Galadriel. And, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to get Aaron to say... Uh, Rainus, and you're not going to get me to say Galadriel. That's really the issue here. That that's the one thing I had for feedback because, like, I, I you know, don't get me wrong. I I have my pet mi- mi- mispronunciations, uh, but I am I am curious about the Galadriel of it, the Galadriel of it all. Is it, was that just like your pet pronunciation in like junior high, high school, and it just stuck through all the Peter yep. Jackson hammering it the other way? Like that's pretty. That's a well-worn mental groove if it, if it survived <laughs> three movies worth of Gladrials. And like a lot of, re- like I keep reading this stuff and I've, I've done the regular books, I've done audio books and I just, I just can't get it out of my head. So we'll see, you know, uh, keep writing in. We're, we're here. Second age of bald move.com. Uh-huh. Um, and mine is Simmerillion as opposed to Silmarillion. So. Oh, I'm a Simmerillion guy too. Yeah. You got, you got your Harforts too. <laughs> And my oh yes, and my Hartfords. <laughs> <laughs> so Morgoth, uh, just to re um, re clarify, that's Sauron's predecessor and boss who was cast out into the void. And I know that at San Diego Comic Con, they released an image that was only at the Hall H 
uh, premiere where there was sort of this backlit, it was like this cloudscape. And then there was the shape in the clouds as if the sun rays were, were or the tree rays were, were going through the clouds, making the shape of Morgoth. So they definitely hinted at it, but we haven't seen any uh, official material about that. From a narrative standpoint, knowing the public already knows a lot about Sauron, uh, it seems like to the extent that they can minimize Morgoth and keep it all about Sauron, so you've got that consistency and antagonist, that would be behoove them. But like, I also... I don't know. Like, do you do you do you see them doing like um, a, a prologue similar to like the beginning of Fellowship, where they talk about the you know how the world got to this state, and it's just or or do you think it's literally going to be like tapestries in the background where you'll see or runic etchings hinting towards Morgoth? You don't you don't think it'll be in it at all, or I think that they're going to dance around it like they did. So they have a lot of material with my brother, I'm carrying his torch. If you if you watch the newest trailer, Galadriel is talking about, you know, my my brother is uh, I'm I'm carrying I'm have to finish what he started. Uh so Finrod was killed by Sauron who was working for Morgoth at the time. So I think that what they're doing is they're going to set up Sauron as this long-term villain, which he was. He was just the the second in command uh for most of the history of Middle-earth. And they're going to allude to the first age in that way because there's more information that they can pull from directly and actually talk about rather than just show in the background when you look at Sauron. All right. So next up, we have Vinny who emailed us and he's got a whole bunch of questions about dwarves. He's wondering, can the dwarves go to the Undying Lands? Have any ever gone? Uh, what are dwarves dur- doing during the major events, uh, a.k.a. Malkor and Sauron, of the First and Second Age? Uh, is it ever explained where they are during the showdown at Gondor? Uh, why aren't they called to Gondor? And what's their uh, fate after the events of the Third Age? So that's a big basket of dwarves there. Vinny wanted a book report, so uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll give it to you, Vinny. Don't worry, we're here. Uh, okay, let's start with the first one. Uh, can dwarves go to the Undying Lands? Not usually. Remember, we talked in the prologue episode about their strange origins. They were created by one of the Valar, one of those demigods, rather than Eru Luvatar, the big creator god. So it's kind of unclear if they even have a soul. They 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 must because Eru Luvatar eventually animated them. Uh, and but nobody knows what happens to them when they die. Whether they have the fate of men or something else. They definitely go, don't go to Valinor. They definitely don't go to the Undying Lands because. They would know, you know, we would know the elves are there, uh, but we don't know where they go exactly. Now, there is one dwarf for which they made an exception, and that was Gimli, who went with Legolas after the events of the Lord of the Rings. Why is, did they, did Tolkien ever give a rationalization for that? Because it seems like, is it just, because so that, that tells you that dwarves can go, but they mm-hmm. don't. Is it because that's just, did Gimli have a good time in the Undying Lands? Or is it all too bright and elvish over there? And he's just, you know, doors can party. It's true. You got to party like it's it's uh, like you dug too deep. Um, Gimli, I'm I'm sure had a fine time. I mean, I'm sure he missed his minds. But uh, the Undying Lands, they don't preserve you in any way, but they do sort of heal sickness and they make you feel good. So it's a it's a pleasant place for anyone to live. The whole separation is just that after after some nonsense happened in the first age, the Valar really wanted to be separate from Middle Earth and and sort of this unattainable place. So I think Gimli and in his service to uh, the destruction of the Ring and saving the world from Sauron 
earned a spot of you know you can you can live out your days here you cannot get ill before you die uh and and so i think that was the point of that is so is, is can any elf essentially give you an undying lands pass like hey this is my no. this is my brother from a different human mother or dwarf mother and i and because like or, or did all the elves kind of somehow yeah like i, I guess that's what i'm oh, is did, did legolas like float the idea at some elf party and they're like <laughs> oh, gimli oh i can see it yeah he did help us beat so or well, yeah like what is the or is it just you, kind you of mean, like did the elves open the books and make uh, make a dwarf a made man and welcome yes, him into the exactly, family. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Has there ever been a Joe Pesci dwarf that thought he's going to make it and actually... Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, shit. Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, I don't I don't think the elves have any authority over who goes to Valinor, honestly. Um, it's, it's really the Valar who have that authority, Manwe. Oh, so they had to sign off on it. Manwe and his right. crew had to, had to bless right. it. Right, hmm. and so you, you have people like Gandalf, who are Maiar, who are these sort of semi-demigods, as David likes to put it. Gandalf can give Gimli his, uh, you know, you got the Valinor pass, and uh, send him on his way without any interference from the elves. I think that Gimli and Legolas were just besties, and so they wanted to go together, but they didn't need to go together. I want to token and say that, like, uh, Elf knows in his heart when he can take a friend to the Undying. Like, and if, if it seems good within his gut, then it probably is good, you know? That feels right because an elf wouldn't an elf wouldn't do a marginal call like that, right? Right. Yeah, that, they're that just too right. in tune with everything. They ju- they just give you like a cold, aloof look. Oh, if you ask to go to the Undying Lands, <laughs> you're not going to the Undying Lands. That's that. That's just point blank. Period. So, what did happen with the uh, the dwarves at uh, Gondor and their fa- and their fates going into the Third Age? Well, we skip one question from Vinny. We've we've got some first Second Age questions from Vinny first. Uh, first second age we've got a lot of stuff with the dwarves they were up to some good things and some bad things Uh, they found a bunch of kingdoms in the blue mountains Uh, there are some mischievous dwarves there's a really cool dwarf in the story of the children of Hurin uh, which has a really great Christopher Lee audiobook that I'll plug every time it comes up uh, because Christopher Lee was the biggest Lord of the Rings fan and he did that book justice Uh, but so there's a ton of stuff in the first age. The second age is what we're going to see with that kingdom of Khazad-dûm, which becomes Moria, but at this point is a flourishing kingdom. And so far, all the shots of this place have looked incredible. So, so you don't even need to listen to me about what happens with the dwarves in the second age, because you're going to see all that stuff. I'm going to do a quick shameless plug, too. We just did this thing where I mentioned before about this uh, YouTube fanfic review. And one of the films that I recommend that you should watch is called One of the Seven. It was done in 2021. You can uh, search for that on YouTube. And it's it's done as like a silent film where the actors don't speak and there's just narration. And it's about one of the dwarven rings being found by some elves and then how these dwarves trick the elves in giving it back to them and then the dwarves get angry and, and then chase them down. And I think, John, you said that that seemed to encapsulate some uh, some of what was written about, about the uh, relationship between dwarves and elves in the earlier ages. So there's a thing called the Nauglamir. How fun of a word is that? Uh, <laughs> and this was built by the dwarves uh, for Thingol, who was this elf lord who was married to one of the Maiar, uh, the only time that happened. And uh, this is also one of the ancestors of Elrond, one of the ancestors of Baron and Luthien, or of, of Luthien, who was Luthien's father. 
And anyway, so the dwarves made this necklace, and uh, it was for a Silmaril, but then they were really mad that they gave the necklace to Thingol, and there was a whole big quarrel about who really had possession of the Naglamir and the Silmaril within it, and et cetera, et cetera. So that's a really cool story. That's in the Silmarillion. Go read it. Uh, but, but I think that what you're talking about is very similar to that. Uh, we kind of regret giving this to you thing. Elisa on Twitter uh, hit us up, and she is, was speculating, is Meteor Man Sauron, a.k.a. Anatar, or is it Moon Boy from the Adventures of Tom Bombadil, or some other prophecy? So I think this has been the Internet's one of the biggest questions is, who is Meteor Man? Uh, also known as The Stranger. Who is Meteor Man? Great question. Uh, I don't know. Let's speculate. Uh, I don't think it's Sauron because he seems to see, to be more like disoriented and uh, confused and kind of angry at times. So I I don't know. It just doesn't. He doesn't have a very Sauron vibe. Now that could be subverting our expectations, like uh, season eight Game of Thrones. Subvert your expectations, but uh, it could also just be that it's not Sauron. Uh, we were talking about maybe it's Radagast the Brown. Maybe they're just diverging from the Hobbit take. And uh, making their own uh, Radagast. Yeah, Ron, you got any internet points that you want to wager? <sighs> I don't know. I, you guys, um, I, I feel like the Ishtari is the most uh, plausible one. Um, and I, I don't know, man. I feel like it, the the cooler answer is like Saruman or Gandalf. But I know you guys are super. That's a super unpopular opinion because it does break <laughs> a lot of Tolkien canon. But like also. It's what who is going to be the reveal that's going to the, be kind of I guess like one of the other. Like, yeah, I know you, you're really hot on the Blue Wizards theory or like Radagast. That would be interesting. The Blue Wizards are interesting because you could kind of like paint them in with a Gandalf brush, but they're completely like you have a blank slate for those guys. You know what their role they play and who they are and how they behave. And but that's also a problem because they're just not in the story. So. Either way, you're going to divert from canon if you're if you're going to go with a one of the wizards, the Ishtari. Yeah, I love that note that Tolkien made that maybe they went off and started magic cults in the East uh, with, with the Blue Wizards. So that's kind of why I'm hoping it to be a Blue Wizard. I'm hoping to see this like fall of one of the, the Ishtari from light to dark. I think that would be so cool. I want them to do it. I don't know if they have the rights to it. Mm. I've got uh, my theory, my current uh, tinfoil hat theory is that it's uh, Radagast and he's going to help the Harfurts settle into the Shire. That's, uh, that's my internet wager. That's my internet points wager. All right. Next up, we've got uh, Aston on Discord um, asking about the source material relative um, to the rights. Uh, and he says of the Sim- Sil- Silmarillion, uh, he's tried to read that book like 12 times in my life, and I get about 20 pages in, and I just cruise <laughs> back over to L- LOTR or the-, or the Hobbit, you know, where my friends live, and I understand the words. So he asks, if they aren't using any of the material from those, is the show still going to be worth it, or is it still going to be worth it to read the Silmarillion for background and context? Aston, you're asking someone who just did a seven-part lore podcast on the Lord of the Rings if you should read the Silmarillion. <laughs> My answer is yes, you should read the Silmarillion. Um, more detailed, though, I think that 
while they don't have the rights to use the actual material in the Silmarillion, they can use a lot of the same events because they're included in the appendices and in the songs. We talked about that on our last uh, bonus podcast on uh, the appendices. So check that out if you want to hear what's included in there. Uh, but yeah, I will always recommend reading the Silmarillion. It's so much richer. Uh, it's like a history book. It's like Fire and Blood if you're on the hot D train too. Uh, so read it if you want more, but I think you'll be fine in the show if you don't read it too. If I remember right, Aaron, you read it way back. Yeah, I'm, I had a couple attempts through it because, like, as soon I read Lord of the Rings like seventh grade, and I'm like, hot, and I got uh, my hand on a Tolkien Legendarium. You know, it was like one of these the many, many like dictionaries. You know, Tolkien A to Z, and like, you know, there's enough cool ideas in that that I'm like, yeah, I want to mainline the real shit. And the Silmarillion, mm. Silmarillion broke me. It wasn't until much later, <laughs> like I think uh, maybe my junior in high school that I sat down and I found that uh, the best way to make it through that is like the way I used to read the Bible, because I'm also one of those weirdos have read the Bible through a few times. Um, just you're not you're not necessarily reading it for pleasure in like a page turning kind of way. It's like, you know, I want to read a couple pa- three or four pages a night. Uh, or a particular from one sub thing to another, but like it, it is, it's not the type of book you're going to stay up all night reading. I don't know. Maybe John feels that way about it. I think John would, but it's not a page turn. And that's the thing. Like I would never recommend a casual fan read uh, fire and blood. Like you're just going to spoil the show, which is probably going to be a more engaging thing. And you're only going to get the bare plot points devoid of any like really human context. Um, that's not necessarily the Silmarillion, but it's it is it is very biblical. You know, it it does feel like some of those early early books of the Bible in in its its mythic feel and the way it tells stories. Very, very, I don't know, formal, um, measured. Do I use the Silmarillion audiobook to fall asleep sometimes? Yes. Is it a little boring sometimes? <laughs> yes, that's why it makes me go to sleep. But Perfect. it is also riveting when you can really get into there it. There are super cool um, parts. And I'll, it, yeah. I'll say this for, yeah, I'll say this for the, for the show, the, all the material that could be in the show basically is included in the last couple chapters. The Akalabeth, which is the downfall, and that's the story of the fall of Numenor, and then the, uh, of the rings of power, which is, you know, the whole war with Sauron. So if you just want to mainline something for the show, you got two chapters. It's like maybe 40 pages. There you go. There's some good value. I'd take away there. Aston, uh, uh, jump onto the last two chapters of the Silmarillion and, uh, do yourself a favor uh, to enjoy the show. Um, next over, we're going to get an email from Steve O. And I thought this was a very cool um, email. He said, hey, guys, not a question, but a bit of nice Tolkien trivia to help paint a picture of his inspiration. I used to live in Edgebaston, 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 uh, an area of Birmingham, Birmingham, where Tolkien spent some of his formative years. Near to where I lived, there were two towers, one called uh, Perot's Folly and Edgebaston Waterworks Tower. It's said that in the time Tolkien lived in the area, from the top of one of these towers, the only other structure you could see sticking out of the canopy of the trees below was the other tower. 
This is said to have heavily influenced Tolkien's idea for the eponymous uh, two towers, and that as he grew up, the trees around these towers were chopped down to make room for new housing and commercial development. Mm. Again, this must have been a huge inspiration for Sauron chopping down the trees around Isengard. Loving the podcast. Can't wait for the coverage of the series. Thanks, Steve. That is a cool piece of trivia. I love seeing all the, the real-world references to Tolkien's life because, you know, you got Shelob with the spider that bit him when he was a kid. You got this. And I think that Tolkien was just absorbing things around him and, and putting all of his uh, dreams and desires and fears into uh, into his world. Like, I, I know he had a dream about Atlantis. He had a nightmare about the sinking of Atlantis. And that's how he came up with the idea of the island of Numenor. It's cool. It reminds me of... Uh the famous story of George Martin visiting Harridan's wall. And like, you know, this is the, the, this little mini wall that kind of divides was England from Scotland. Uh, and, yeah. uh, it's this old Roman fortification and it's, you know, still in some parts stands eight, nine, 10 feet tall and getting at the top of that and looking over it and thinking about what it would be like to be a Roman legionary, uh, on this wall, looking out and wondering what kind of strange people with strange gods that might attack out of nowhere, and like that coming up with the idea of this eternally vigilant wall. It's it's super cool when mm. like like uh, John is saying, authors use their personal experience. I mean, that's I guess what all great authors do. They take their life and put it in their experience machine engine, and, and it goes out on paper. And Tolkien, what a life! Yeah. I mean, you guys really banged that home. Uh, what a unique yeah. individual with a unique life, and it's it's it, it, you got it got a lot of that out on the page. And then to you know this sort of nicely segues into our next question. Um, uh, but just to briefly talk about Tolkien's life and his fellowship with uh, TCBS, the the Tea Club and Barovian Society. Like, ha- would we have gotten that from? Would we have gotten all this stuff from Tolkien if he hadn't had that initial? shot of of energy and fellowship and 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 um, uh, friends encouraging each other to produce art and music and poetry um, so uh, really really interesting to think about how Tolkien just wrapped him his whole self into these stories and so Grant C had wrote in uh, relative to our question of what is a Barovian and uh, he says that although, although Barovian is a colloquial term for a native of my hometown, Barrow in Furness in northwest England, in regards to the TCBS, a Barovian refers to the Barrow stores, department stores, where they would meet during the summers. And I'm going to segue directly straight over. We also got another email from Marilyn R. Pukila, who I'd mentioned before. She's a, a librarian emeritus at, I believe it was Cole College in Maine. And she used to teach Tolkien, and she's taught a lot about fantasy. And um, I think she's even involved some of the research, the Tolkien research groups. She wrote in to, with the, basically the same information. And then her and I talk about this specifically. And then we end up just going on for like 20 minutes talking about Tolkien and, and fantasy stuff. So that's going to be at the end of the uh, podcast. But now we know what a Barovian society is. It's funny because every time you guys said TCBS on the podcast, I mentally heard Taking Care of Business Society. And it sounded like a big Elvis, <laughs> Elvis appreciation group. Because I could, yeah, it's like the, the, everything. It's like, I, yeah, bear, what the hell? Yeah, it seemed weird. Yeah. The Barovian. The Barovian society. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
All right, next up we have uh, DJ Miwa on Discord. Uh, DJ has always got great stuff to say on the Discord, so I'm really glad that uh, you wrote in, DJ. He says, Lorehounds, first off, really got to say, appreciate your efforts to clarify the earlier parts of Tolkien lore. He's made previous attempts to understand the First and Second Age events, but at some point there are just too many tendrils and it just becomes hard to keep track. But here's a question for you. Tolkien, to my understanding, insists his legendarium is not allegorical. And I know for certain Tolkien, scholar, Tolkien scholars argue the same. But my question is, doth they protest too much? If it looks allegorical, sounds allegorical, and walks like an allegory, is it not one? Especially when you look at the events from the First and Second Age. Just want to get your thoughts. They do with protest too much. I totally agree with you, DJ Miwa. I think that Tolkien didn't like the word allegory, but that's exactly what he was doing a lot of the time. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's not much more to say than that. I think that I think that people get too attached with to what an author says about their own work sometimes, and uh, literary criticism is valid even if it goes against what the author wanted you to perceive. Because reading and viewing and and participating in a universe includes the interaction between the author and the reader and your interpretation matters to what you get out of it so i if you want to get allegory out of it get allegory out of it don't don't worry about what a tolkien scholar is going to say to you uh we will at the lorehound support your allegorical adventures yeah i feel like I always thought that he protested a bit too much but it also might come from a respect he had for his religion that like if the Lord of the Rings was an allegory, it would be maybe seen as demeaning the true religion and 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 the fact that like it's uh, something I found I was researching a little bit last night is it seemed like he kind of wrestled with the idea of like what would God think of this heathen society that he had created and like would they go to heaven would they have so and like you know did God have a plan for Aragorn essentially and like if he actually made a strict allegory maybe that would come up with some uncomfortable questions that he could just like mentally mentally dodge by by not by by not acknowledging the truth of what he's done uh but i don't know it's it's for whatever reason it seemed like he was super uncomfortable with putting that label on it i think that marilyn brings this up but tolkien wrestled with that his whole life like you were saying uh he even was like should i put the sun and the moon in from the beginning because is it like heretical or is it incorrect? Right. Next up, we've got Davy Mack on the Discord, and he says maybe it's impossible to answer, but where in the writing would you be worried about it faltering? I think he's referring to the show here: character, plot, lore ideas, all of the above. This property means different things to so many different people. It seems an impossible task to play in this universe. The way uh, Jennifer Hutchinson talks about the passion that went into the writing of the show, I've got high hopes, but I'm also not steeped deeply in the lore of Middle Earth, so there are no burdens or expectations or preconceived notions with me. Davy Mack is an OG of the Lord of the Rings book club on uh, the Bald Move Discord server. So if you're not on there, you're missing out, but we're almost done with Return of the King. So, uh, But we, maybe we'll do something again uh, after we're done. Uh, we're, we, we've been talking about maybe doing some book projects. But anyway, back to your question, Davy Mac. Uh, my biggest concern for the writing is the dialogue, I would say, because watching Hot D, the dialogue is just perfect. It's like almost perfect. Every line means something. It's very f- smooth, flowing. And uh, 
can they do that in the Lord of the Rings where already in the trailer, I know David, you have your pet line. I have my pet yeah. line, which is with our hearts even bigger than our feet with the Harfoots. Oh man, <laughs> did that make me cringe. So let's hope that that's a one-off and that's, that, that there's nothing else. That's my biggest concern. So I'm less concerned about the lore details because as long as you tell me a good story, I'm happy. Uh, as far as stakes, I'm also concerned there because a prequel always has stakes issues. We know, you know, we know Bran's going to be king if you're if you're watching Hot D, and we know that uh, Sauron's eventually going to be defeated if you watch Lord of the Rings and you're going to watch this. So that's a big issue. So again, like Aaron and Jim have been saying in their podcast on Hot D, how they do it and the emotions that they make me feel about how they do it is the key to this show. That was always like, you know, when I read Fire and Blood, I'm like, there are, I see all the set pieces, I see the intrigue, but what I don't get is the, you know, why do I care? You know, why do I, and why am I back in this side or that side? Why am I back in this person's claim or that claim? And with the first episode of the Hot D, like, I relax because they are doing that. And I think the same, because like, Lord of the Rings is a lot more narrative, like even, you know, Peter Jackson definitely introduced some comic relief, but broadly speaking, Gimli was a comic relief character. You had Merry and Pippin that were there to like kind of lighten the, you know, and, and Sam was kind of a funny character. And and the, even Gandalf got to say some some pretty funny stuff. And that was as written. You know, there was like tension breaks. You don't get a lot of that in the epilogue of Lord of the Rings. Uh, you don't get a lot of that in the, the Silmarillion, <laughs> right? Like it's it's a lot more of like really awesome epic stuff but you do need some 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 levity you do need some human stakes and like when i think of those things i don't think of elves i think of you know like very right. serious very so like uh and to the extent that this is essentially great men and elves um and and serious dwarves and they're all stuff like i do wonder how they are going to do that without really like you mentioned screwing up the tone but I was worried about that with the House of the Dragon, and you know, it turns out they had some pretty good, talented writers, and they were able to breathe the life that was missing on the page there. And I don't know why. I I would, you know, I, I guess I'm going to assume that they do that before I worry about it over much, right? I think my biggest concern is going to be in the CGI. Uh, nothing takes mm. me out of the verisimilitude than a, a bad CGI scene, and I've seen a couple in the trailers here with the, like the ice waterfall or. Uh, a Ron Deere kicking a part of a wall down on some enemies that are coming up at him, and it just looks really fake, and that really jars me. It, it pops me right out. Yeah, I'm hoping that's a trailer issue more than a, an actual show yeah. issue. Maybe it's not done being polished. The Galadriel thing just shocks me because I have seen filming shots, production stills, where she is doing that dagger thing on the mountain, and you can see her actually doing it. She's like on a crane. And it looks like CGI, like her face looks like CGI in the trailer. And I have no idea how they took a practical shot and they made it look like bad CGI. Reminds me of, uh, you remember like in the prequel trilogy in episode one, everyone said how fake the Gungan battlefield looked like and all that stuff was actually rotoscoped live action. Like that was, you know, the real Mm -hmm. grass hills and all that. So it's like, it is sometimes weird how you can get tricks of light and stuff cannot work out but uh i I, to be honest that's the weakest part of house of the dragon is there was some shaky cg and that premiered there were there were a couple of um yeah yeah my my guess is that their bank they put their budget for cgi in later things because i think they've got some bigger things yeah oh of course 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and you're always going to have everything, almost everything that you see is eventually a compromise. Like, uh, you know, yeah. uh, even the original Lord of the Rings, I, I think I was listening to um, a special effects that guy where the guy was kind of like embarrassed about the cave troll in the fellowship because it, you know, especially 20 years on some of that stuff. Amazing how much of it does hold up. But some of that stuff, some of the broad daylight mm-hmm. stuff, you can see the seams a bit. Um but it's right. not fatal because they get the, they, they nail, they nail the, the, the character stuff and they can't, right. I mean, obviously the, the CGI can't be a shit show because that just breaks your suspense. But I think most people will forgive a flaw here and there. If, if you do everything else, right. Um, and you, as what was the really awful CGI from uh, walking dead from oh, the, the all the animal stuff. Anytime, uh, like they just oh, would throw a CGI white tailed so deer. Bad. It's like, God damn, you don't have those in Georgia. <laughs> yes, you can't yes, grab a deer and just have it scamper through a field. You need, yeah, there's some, there's some, there's a lot of God awful, the water effects of the, some of the bridges being destroyed and yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you can't compare the budgets of those shows. My God. Like Rings of Power is no excuse if 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 they have much bad CGI. No, especially with the money that they threw down for marketing. Exactly. Uh, next up, we've got Jamie M who wrote in an email who said they just became a Bald Move Club member. Yay! Does a little bell ring somewhere when the, a new member? Yeah, the, uh, maybe a, a a cash register to ching. I grow a new Jim's set of wings. When, I'm festooned. Uh, new- I look like an Old Testament archangel. <laughs> I just just wings and eyes, and it's just a, a fucking Lovecraftian nightmare. We're seeing it live. <laughs> that is <folks>. terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Jamie M just subscribed to the, pi- the Patreon podcast feed, and they are also subscribed to the Bald Move Prestige and Pulp feeds, Dug Too Deep feed, and the Lorehound Second Day. So, so, so Jamie M has got it all, but they're still asking, is there anything that's going to appear in the other feeds that doesn't appear in the Patreon feed? If not... Will that simplify my RSS podcatcher? So, yeah, so this is a little bit of a technical question. Um, Aaron, can you talk a little bit about feeds and sort of how this all works a little bit? Oh, crap. Oh, crap. So, like, yeah, so um, so Bald Move Pulp and Bald Move Prestige round up essentially all at least a Jim and Aaron coverage. And optionally, our co-hosts like uh, J- uh, David and, and John here can can opt into that. Um there's some trade-offs and all that. And there's other things like, Oh gosh, that's something that we kind of need to circle back. Cause we, you know, we, we did this network and we've kind of grown with Anthony and you guys, we do need to talk about like, what is appropriate to have on the Patreon versus not. Um, because like the, the, the positive of the Patreon is that, you know, it's the club members like getting ad free feeds and stuff. The negative is, is you guys are getting paid through ads. So, like, is that appropriate to push your stuff through the Patreon? Um, and if it is, we probably should specify that and, you know, add our, our you know, add that to our agreements. Um, but, like, so the way I understand it is, like, so Pulp and Prestige get everything rolled up and, you know, all of the Lord of the Rings stuff, since it's got dragons and elves and all that, will go under Pulp. Um, it's not an indication of quality. It just essentially does have magic or robots or spaceships in it. And it does. So then you've got Dug Too Deep, which is going to be Gemini's main show coverage feed. And then you've got the Second Age or the Lorehounds feed, which is going to be all your guys' stuff. So you think of the Lorehounds feed as like the bald move firehose feed for the Lorehounds. All future content will definitely 100% go out through there. So you're not going to miss anything. Um, we are going to be rebroadcasting a lot of the Lorehound stuff into the Dug Too Deep folder. 
um, you know, to get because we, you know, we, we want to find you guys an audience and I think you're doing great work. Does that answer the questions? Like if you if you're down to like you've got dug too deep in Lorehounds, you're never going to miss anything the Lorehounds do. Uh, and if you're a, if you're a sign, if you're a, if you're a Patreon, in addition, if we ever would do a bonus podcast, a special bonus podcast with the guys, it would be there as well. So I think you're covered like six ways from Sunday. Right. I think what uh, Jamie is asking, too, is can he delete any of these feeds? I, I guess I would say if you're subscribed to the Patreon feed and the Lorehounds feed, you will definitely get everything. Uh, because w- the only thing that's up in the air is are the Lorehounds going to still show up on Patreon? Yeah. So if you're subscribed to our Firehose feed and the pol- the the pr- Patreon feed, you should be. Yeah. I, so if you don't you don't need dug too deep if you're on Pulp because you'll get that stuff anyway, and then you'll also get the anything the Lorehounds. So yeah, I think you're right. If you got Patreon and Pulp and dug and and you don't probably need dug too deep. deep. But we do appreciate all the subs. Yeah, and the thing is, like, you are <laughs> we'll definitely helping, like, the Jim and Aaron of it out because, like, this is a brand new thing. Oh, like, we're going to be scrapping. This is a big show. We're going to be scrapping with a lot of people, and we're all trying to make each other's boat fly, float higher. So if you don't mind subscribing to more than one feed and set it the, the down, auto downloads to off, uh, everything that you sub to and rate and review uh helps that boat just rise a little bit higher and to the extent that our fan base you know helps out and others maybe not um you know that that that'll definitely help us out in, in the long term so yeah the more but like i said i mean honestly i always enjoy it when people just listen like if every other hoop they have to jump through to support us super appreciated but like it all starts with you just listening each week you know and however I, my normal answer is when people ask how to support us the most convenient way possible for you because ultimately you know that's that's that that's going to get us our biggest bang for the buck you know claude m uh, wrote in an email to ask a quick question for the mailbag episode do you know why they got the rights to lord of the rings and hobbit and not all the auxiliary material seems like that would be much more relevant to what they are doing and possibly cheaper to get than the four central books you guys kind of nailed that in, in in the aftermath, right? That like uh, Tolkien kind of got burned and didn't want to. Re- so so the only thing that's out is the stuff that he released in antiquity the rights to. Yeah. So I did. Uh, uh, I put on my um, dry suit and uh, put on my weight belt and scuba gear and I went down deep on this. And if you dove too deep, oh wow! That yeah, I dug too deep. If you thought that Tolkien lore was complex and arcane, the the film rights are even more so. Um, but I think I have rolled it up in a nice, easy way to understand at least the progression. So just the other week, we had news. The Embracer Group bought the rights from Middle Earth Enterprises, who had, uh, which is also known as the Saul Zanes Company, which had gotten those rights... Uh, in 1976 from United Artists, which was then became uh, MGM because uh, UA uh, went bankrupt. And UA, United Artists, got the rights from 1916, in 1969 from Tolkien himself because Tolkien apparently needed to pay a tax bill. So he sold the rights to Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit for 100,000 pounds. So that's about 1.5 million pounds today. So figure $2 million. And he got, uh, yeah, and he got a 7.5% share in the profits. Hmm. So then he had, there is a a writer or a, a, a 
they they put in a matching rights to the Silmarillion Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-earth and I'm not sure how they did that because those things didn't exist yet but apparently United Artists when they first got the initial rights sometime later that stuff got added in and then when the rights passed to Saul Zaints um that carried over when United Artists passed the rights to Saul Zaints United Artists kept the distribution rights and gave them the rights for Lord of the Rings and The Hobbits and everything that's in those books. Um, United Artists tried to write a screenplay, but like nothing really came of it. And then um, Saint, Saul Zaints was able to produce the Bakshi uh, animated version uh, of Lord of the Rings. Um, there's a really interesting gap in the rights coverage that... Um, this is how Amazon got the show somehow, and I'm not sure how it's codified in the legal language, but any television show no longer than eight episodes. So if it's a nine-episode show, then Middle Earth Enterprises and now the Embracer Group would have rights to those. But if you do a TV show under eight episodes, you can do it without messing up those rights with those. So that's why I, I wondered why the eight episodes. Uh, interesting. Saul Zaints was a really interesting guy. He passed away in 2014 as a, a complications to Alzheimer's. That's something that the Bald Move uh, community were, were kind of aware sure. of. It's one of our charity things that um, uh, we support in our annual uh, Groundhog Day coverage. But Saul Zaints started in music, and um, he was big with Creedence Clearwater Revival and John Fogarty. And then he produced uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which won five Oscars. Uh, Amadeus, which won eight Oscars. Um, uh, English Patient, which won nine Oscars. Uh, and he's got a bunch of other films. And apparently, uh, Brooklyn MD, who is another one of our, our Discord people, wrote in to say that he thought, or they thought that they remember an interview um, about how Harvey Weinstein might have helped Peter Jackson get to the rights from Zaints because Jackson had worked with Weinstein and Zaints on English Patient, and then Zaints sort of owed him a favor. So, like I said, it's arcane stuff. Um, I think the Tolkien estate is holding back all the Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales and all of that other stuff, and they're not selling those rights. And the rights initially released by Tolkien in 69, those are what have been pass, been, been changing hands uh, over the course of the years. Man, that's wild that the rights of Lord of the Rings and essentially perpetuity and The Hobbit got sold for a million bucks 50 years ago. Or, for basically less than they're spending on the show. Yes, much less. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, George Lucas gets $4 billion for Star Wars. George J.R.R. Tolkien... Got one million for Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. That's pretty. That's gay. That's good. That's a, that's a good deal if you can find it for sure. If you get an old English professor bent over his pipe leaf barrel on a tax bill, and you work him over. Wow. And the seven and a half points that they get for profit isn't even that much. Well, especially with Hollywood accounting, yeah. Oh no! And then there's there's like active lawsuits right now between like everybody, like, mm, different producers. Yeah, everybody's suing everybody. It's it's pretty wild. That's why we're getting that nice uh, that nice animated film from Warner Brothers about the Rohirrim coming out just to save yes. the rights because they're like ah maybe if we make it we still have the rights. Exactly. Exactly. 
And then John, like you know, Tolkien was like, you had a funny quote about Tolkien and rights and, and um, what was that? Cash or kudos. He was, he and Cash his manager kudos. were like, yeah, you know, either we get a big payday or we get a really good adaptation. As long as we get either one, we're okay. And I, I they kind of got neither for a really long time, at least until the Peter Jackson trilogy. Yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, next up, this one's going to um, uh, touches on some some hot stuff. Um, Dominic P. emailed in saying uh, that they're looking forward to the season. He says, uh, I think one thing I hate about the reactions some hardcore Tolkien fans have is that they don't want any adaptations whatsoever unless it's explicitly as in the text. And I personally want to see what other people do. That's kind of the point of the form. And to be quite honest, it would be boring if it was done exactly as in the books. Who hasn't thought of all these cool things that could use some action on screen? Wouldn't that be cool? So uh, he goes on to say, as someone who in their younger days worked at a bookstore chain, and it wasn't until the Harry Potter movies that we were absolutely flooded with kids who wanted to go back and read the books. He concludes, don't worry, the show will secure the legacy of the books, y'all. Even if they don't come out perfectly like the original, that's okay. If it's faithful, it'll be entertaining and moving. I will out myself a little bit as a younger member of the Bald Move community. I was like nine years old when I saw the Peter Jackson movies, and uh, I I loved it, and that's what got me into Lord of the Rings, and... uh, I, I think that you're exactly right, Dominic, is that is that generally film and TV adaptations bring people in instead of shutting people out, and I'm glad that they exist. Yeah, and I think uh, the thing about Peter Jackson and, uh, was it Fran and Freya? Uh, or Fran and, uh, I forget the other collaborator. They were pretty skillful adaptations. Like if you listen to the bonus material, Lord of the Rings, like they put a lot of thought into what they should cut and what they didn't and which roles to expand and kind of agonized over that stuff. And I think, you know, um, I've seen many an adaptation that's just way too slavish and copycut and things that work in the books don't work in in movies and, and vice versa. You know, you can't have like huge interior dialogues. Uh, like you can in a book and omniscient POVs. Um, but, you know, you can also pictures worth a thousand words. So like an adaptation, it has to keep all that stuff in mind. Um, and it remains to be seen how well they do with this. You know, I'll, I'll, well, everything points to good, but I, I agree. I, I'm, I'm never like, I, I think you put Tom Bombadil in fellowship and it's, it, 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 it makes the movie lesser, you know? Um, the, the the more like I the, the, yeah the the whole first third of, of of fellowship is such a huge tonal departure uh, from the rest of the work that it's like it's it's kind of whiplashy and you can get away with that in the book but like you know you got two and a half hours of people you can't waste their time so I, I I'm I've always been that like I I don't don't want a hundred percent faithful adaptation of the book I want a hundred percent faithful adaptation of the characters and spirit of the book but the plot. That can be that can be bent um, if necessary to service the other two. I'm going to put this in the show notes because this is an amazing Reddit post that somebody compiled of all the negative feedback that the Peter Jackson trilogy got on sure. forums before it came yeah. out. It is so funny to look at these. Here's one: If you're going to give that scene to Arwen, hell, you may as well have her lead the fellowship. Hell, you may as well have her carry the ring to Mordor all by herself. She sure doesn't need any hobbit when being the most courageous and beautiful woman in Middle-earth, she can do it all by herself. So, yes, this is a tale as old as time. 
people will be very angry at adaptations for not doing everything exactly the same, and then they'll pretend like they weren't mad when the adaptation is amazing. Right. So, like, let's just go have fun. Yeah, like, it, like it, the movie would be materially improved if Glorfindel was introduced for one scene, so we could have a beautiful, shining <laughs> male elf, you know, instead of, like, re, you know, reusing a character that's barely used in the first place. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the kind of stuff we're talking about. And you're going to, honestly, you're going to see a lot of that. You already have. You already have seen people bitch and moan about what I consider entirely irrelevant points and they're going to continue to do so mm-hmm. throughout the first season and probably will trail off uh, especially if the show's good you know because um, yeah. that's the other thing if, if Peter Jackson is shit to bed we would probably be looking at a lot of those criticisms a lot differently or we wouldn't be thinking about them all because we've already forgotten about the project you know mm-hmm I want to flag one thing, too, that a lot of this purity to the author's vision or whatever, the the masking that it does for misogyny and racism and a lot of the the really garbage stuff that's out there, especially on, on YouTube. Um, and we're just not here for that. And and that is not why we're here and what we're, we're interested in. We want to see this work elevated and, like John said, played with and expanded. And like Aaron said, you know, like tell a good story and, and, and we're going to be happy. So, um, yeah, there's just going to be a lot of trash out there. There's already a lot of trash for House of the Dragon. And, uh, yeah, that's just, that's just not any part of what we are about or what we're doing here. Yep. Comrade Rosa on Discord. Uh, this is kind of a fun one. Uh, Comrade's a, a great source of Tolkien uh, uh, knowledge and has been feeding us a lot of great stuff. Um, and they ask, a question for the feedback podcast. What relationships does not have to be romantic? Are you most excited to see play out on screen? Pick one canonical and one non-canonical. So his are uh, canonical Elrond and Gilgalad and off-canon Galadriel and Muriel. All right, I got the canon advantage, so I'm going to let you guys go first. All right, Aaron. Uh, boy, I you guys gave me these in advance, but I didn't see them. Uh, I'm going to say offhand, I would like. I'm really curious about if uh, what what they do with Isildur and his brother and Darion. Is that his name? Anarion. Anarion. I think they've cut Anarion. Oh no! They've uh, replaced Anarion with uh, somebody. Remind me the Halbrand? name. Halbrand? No, no. Aarian? I think it's Aarian or Arian. Oh, I don't know how they're pronouncing it, but they made him a sister instead. Interesting. So that, it's fine. It's still the same character, basically, I think. It's just a sister. Okay. Okay. Because like, I, I, I always thought that was such a cool thing from the movies when you go to the, is it the Anorak, the, 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 the borders of Gondor, where you've got Isildur and his mm-hmm. brother with their you know hands on their axes and hilts, and they're these giant stone things, like these two brothers, <laughs> yeah, and it's like... Those are cool. And you always hear about, you know, that uh, Isildur wanted to keep the ring for a weir guild, you know, as a remembrance of, of sacrifices, his brother and father, and I thought that, like, familial relationship would be kind of cool if they nail that, you know, cause like, that's what they need to do. They need to make these deaths, these sacrifices mean something the same way that like, you know, you're, you're weeping at the end of the return of the King because of all the sacrifices that Sam and Frodo have made for each other and a fellowship have made for them and how it's all worked. And they're just, you know, they, that wouldn't mean the same thing if they hadn't developed Frodo and Sam. Right. So like I think that's a key to like that they they really have to nail these familial uh, relations and the uh, friend relations and that's that's the one I'm excited for. Uh, for me, both of mine are going to be Galadriel related. Um, I'm very interested to see how they're going to play her in Elrond. 
um, especially with what we know of who they become in the Jackson films. So it'll be really interesting to see uh, uh, Galadriel, who's a badass, and Elrond, who's sort of this uh, (laughs) punk kid trying to tell her what's what. But then the non-canonical one, and I've been pretty. There's, I've had a lot of sus. I've been feeling very sus about this, but I think I'm coming around. I want to see what they do with Halbrand and Galadriel. In this last trailer, we saw some new dialogue between them, and there's some interesting stuff that um, that uh, Galadriel says to Halbrand about, like you know, whatever you did in the past, let it go. And as I said in a previous podcast, anything. Any story where there's a character who's um, seeking, um, uh, not restitution, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, rehabilitation. Salvation. Salvation. Um, you know, if you think of the, the, the De Niro movie, The Mission, where he's climbing up the, the waterfall and they finally, you know, cut his ball, you know, his big heavy load that he was carrying up. That's a really great scene. But, you know, seeking healing and try to try to recover from something, they're hinted at that. And so um, at first we were a little worried that they were going to try and do a romance thing between Halbrand and Galadriel. But now I'm hoping it's going to be like a buddy cop thing. So um, where do we go with those two? That's my non-canonical relationship. Okay. You took my non-canon one, David, but it's okay because I have others. All right. Uh, the non-canon one, I'll do that one first since it's fresh in my mind now, uh, is Elrond and Durin the Fourth. That's the red-haired mm. dwarf we're seeing. Uh, they seem to have a chummy relationship, uh, and that's something that is not explored in the books. I mean, we know that Durin helped in uh, the war that we talked about in that, uh, in, in that Chapter 5 episode, uh, but we haven't seen this sort of Elrond and uh, during the fourth buddy cop thing, as you were, as you, as you used with <laughs> uh, Halbrand and Galadriel, Galadriel. I'm gonna Galadriel. I'm gonna do it every time. Uh, all right, so my uh, my canon one, I would say Elrond and Celebrimbor seems like a really interesting relationship because I don't want to spoil too much. Uh, so I guess fast forward if you don't want to hear me talk about a, a potential spoiler for the series is uh, Elrond. Elrond has to sort of pick up the pieces where Celebrimbor fails. And I think that seeing the way that Elrond and Celebrimbor are interacting at the beginning, does Celebrimbor see him as a mentee? Does Celebrimbor see him as a rival among the Noldor? That's going to be really interesting to see. Awesome. Okay, cool. Um, Marilyn P., who we're going to be having an interview with at the end of this, she gets our last word by email. She said she enjoyed the most recent episode of the podcast, um, and she was really interested in the question of free will versus fate uh, and other actions or not of Eru Iluvatar. Uh, Eru Iluvatar, uh, as a recollection, is the grand creator god. Um, and she says that in a letter, Tolkien makes it clear that Eru and not the Valar sent Gandalf back. One of the many examples of divine intervention as he saw it, along with Bilbo finding the ring. So are we going to see the hand of Eru in um, the Rings of Power? Uh, if they're sticking to the story, you're absolutely going to see the hand of, of Eru. If you want to hear the pronunciation of Eru, like for real, just listen to Marilyn in this, in this follow-up interview. She's like, <laughs> Eru. It's, 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 it's good. Oh, I can't see, do I was that. about to suggest we call him Uwu Iluvatar. You know, and make him like really, like really cute emoticon god. <laughs> he was Eru Arugula on one of our podcasts <laughs> ooh, because we ooh, couldn't ooh, get it going. Arugula, yeah, that's the that's the uh, the the, the, the all powerful white god of the universe. Yeah, 
<laughs> we'll pass that over the that emoji over to the bald move art club on the discord that makes all our emojis <laughs> and stuff like that i'm sure they'll have fun with that all right uh that wraps it up for our listener feedback thank you everyone who wrote in if we missed your question in for in some way shape or form i apologize send it back uh, email secondage at baldmove.com or hit us up on the Discord because we're going to be rolling through the episode um, and we'll have more chances to uh, address your content. But to everybody, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun to get all of the feedback and all the vibes that we were getting from everyone. So yeah, it, it was a, a really great mailbag. Yeah. Thanks for writing in. Keep doing it. We're going to be here all season. Okay. So we, we have... We have fulfilled the mission. We have prepped the audience for Rings of Power as prepped as they can ever be prepped. Uh, what what's uh, what's next for Lorehounds, guys? Well, during the season, we've got some coverage. Now, I, I have to break some bad news to folks. I'm going to be traveling for a little bit during the main body of the show, so I'm going to miss like I think three or four episodes. And so Jim and Aaron are going to guest. Uh, host along with John to handle the lore cast stuff, which is going to be dropped on Thursdays. Uh, on, on Mondays, we're going to drop the lore cast. Is, is it the lore cast? Is it spoiler? Right in. Let us know what you like. <laughs> so we'll be we'll be riding shotgun with Jim and Aaron uh, on their main podcast, answering maybe some key lore questions as we go, and then we'll be releasing stuff out uh, as as we go. And I think we'll probably definitely do a, a type of wrap up at the end, uh, especially on the on the lore questions. Um, but that's not the end of the of the lorehounds uh we are not just about fantasy uh john do you want to spill the 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 beans on what's next for us sure uh definitely subscribe if you're not to our fire hose feed the lorehounds you'll see the second age logo on it right now but that'll be our fire hose feed that logo and title will change as we go through because we're gonna move on to another show in october when the white lotus season two comes back we're gonna step out of fantasy for a little bit and we're going to go into prestige. I see you're colonizing yet another one of our roll-up feeds. I see. I see. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm on to you. I'm on to you. We're like a virus. <laughs> uh, yeah, so White Lotus, um, it got a lot of interest in season one in the Bald Move community. A lot of people are asking for it. Uh, it took um, John to, to kind of push me, and it, again... It took me like three or four episodes to get into it, but then I really got into it and I really enjoyed it. And so apparently this is going to be like an anthology series based around these resorts around the world called the White, you know, the White Lotus Resorts. And so it's going to be a different cast of characters. And I believe the next one's going to be in, was it Sicily? Sicily, yeah. Season two? Yeah. yeah. I think the thing with the White Lotus is it codes succession, but it's not succession. Like it not is about all. rich white people. It is absolutely yeah. about rich white people. But it's it's more of a, as you put it, David, a morality play. Yes. And um, but that's not all. There's more. But wait, there's more. Huh? <laughs> wait, there's more. Uh, we're going to be uh, covering the Wheel of Time whenever it comes out. Amazon won't tell us when. 
but it seems like probably either late this year or early next year, the Wheel of Time Season 2 is going to come back. We know Season 1 was a little bit of a rocky road. We certainly had our criticisms, but there's things that we loved in it. I've read all the books. I'm excited to, to be another uh, be, be the lore master again. David's going to ask all the questions, and David's going to give you the show watchers' uh, you know, opinion, sort of like how Jim and Aaron div- divide things on a lot of their podcasts. So we're going to have a lot of fun with that. I love The Wheel of Time. It's one of my favorite series of all time. If you like Tolkien, you like Wheel of Time. Uh, it does some things better. It does some things not as good as far as the books. I can't speak for the series. And I, I think that it will be a great time for any fantasy fans on Bald Move. So... Um when the first when the season came out, I tried to watch the first episode and I turned it off within five minutes. I Rand's sweater was just like I couldn't handle it, um, and uh, John was like, you know, he was steady, drip, drip, drip. He got me to watch it again. Episode four got me, and I really enjoyed the middle run of the the season. Yeah, it it does a lot with Tolkien and fantasy. But one of the things I started to really appreciate about it was the variations that it was putting into those tropes and then how it was like sometimes even just inverting them. There's a lot of production value in the show. Um, it had that we, We've got a whole podcast ready to go when we open up our feed on our reactions to season one. But um, I ended up really enjoying it and I am really looking forward to seeing if they can um, pull it back from season two. Uh, I don't know how much email you guys got aaron asking you guys to cover the show but uh lore hounds have got you we're here for you uh wheel of a time fair fans. amount like it's one of the things where like i never could make it through wheel of time i tried so many times in my teenage and young adulthood where i just never got past like halfway through the first book but i'm happy forever i know like uh, a lot of friends i respect love that series it's beloved it's cherished by all uh, I'm glad we, we've we got you guys to fill in some of those blind spots for. What is it about fourth episodes, man? That's what I always tell people at The Expanse, too. You got to get the, the fourth episode of season one before you write it off because it just takes a while to click. But um, no, I'm glad I'm glad you guys uh, will be filling in some of those 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 holes. Because, yeah, it's like you might maybe people out there would prefer Jim and Aaron coverage. But if you're not getting it, I hope you guys give Dave and John a chance because I really like the chemistry. I like what they're doing here. Uh, I think you guys are 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 a, a valuable addition to the bald move universe. Well, uh, yeah, I think that wraps it up for for this episode. We're going to have this Maryland episode uh, interview uh, come in right after this. But um, just to say a note of thanks to the bald move community because we have got nothing but love from everyone the on Twitter and on Discord. It's been great. Thank you, everyone, for giving us a chance on this. John and I had a lot of fun making this content for you. Thank you for coming on this ride with us. Like, it's crazy. Like, I messaged John back in February. Hey, you want to do something? Like, I don't know. Let's try the Discord States thing or whatever. And then within, like, two weeks, we had a fully fleshed out podcast. And, you know, we had, you know, we pitched Jim and Aaron, and, and they came back to us with really positive comments. So to our Bald Move community, thank you very much for everything that you've given us. And we're really looking forward uh, to, to giving you more. John, thoughts, feelings? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I was so nervous to put myself out there as a lore guide because, <laughs> you know, uh, that that can get really sticky really fast. People can get very upset about things you could say. And I have to say, 
pleasantly surprised in every way. I mean, everyone's been so great. I love chatting with people on Discord. Please join the Ball Move Discord at me. At the Lorehounds, we have a, our own tag now, the mods made us, so you can just at the Lorehounds and it'll tag both of us. And uh, let, let, let's have fun this season. Great. Well, um, that's it for the feedback episode. Aaron, thanks again for your time coming on today. It was a, it was a riot to, to hang out with you and, and talk more. My lore. pleasure. Uh, and again, we appreciate you, uh, you and Jim giving us the chance. Oh, like I said, our pleasure. Great. All right. Thanks, everybody. We will see you as the season rolls out. Look for some bonus content in Dug Too Deep and the Lorehounds feeds. And uh, we'll see you on the discords and Twitter. Hi, Marilyn. It's really great to meet you. Thanks for coming on. This is like a, a really great pleasure to, to have you to have this conversation with you. Well, thanks. The pleasure is mine. I'm really enjoying your deep dive into Tolkien's life because that was so much of a part of what I taught in my course. That's really great. Um, so maybe just a quick uh, self intro. Um, I know we're in the recording. We'll probably have set you up a little bit, but like maybe if you can give us a little bit more insight into who you are and, and how you came to be teaching Tolkien. Well, I am a retired academic research librarian. I worked at Colby for 35 years, and during that time, off and on, I was teaching a course on Tolkien sources. I also taught courses on Harry Potter and the religion of contemporary witchcraft and women in myth and fairy tale. So the, the common thread for all those things was sacred story, although it took me a while to figure that out. I retired a couple years ago, and then COVID hit, and I discovered podcasts, and <laughs> I've just been having the time of my life ever since. That's great. It's well, it's great that we we get to have you on our podcast. I feel uh, uh, pretty special about that. So you wrote in because we posted a question in our <laughs> one of our episodes. What is the Barovian in DCBS? And you came up with a, a great answer, and I would love for you to, to share what it is that you, you wrote with us initially. Sure. Well, this all comes from Carpenter's excellent biography of Tolkien, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, Barovian referred to Barrows, and... Um, one of the four TCBS members, uh, Chris Wiseman, has an interview that he gave in, in Carpenter's biography, and I thought I would just read from that because he certainly puts it better than I could. Perfect. So he's talking about the fact that the four of them would have tea together during their exam uh, sessions in summer term. Those first teas were in the library cubby hole. Then, as it was the summer term, we went out and had tea at Barrow's Stores in Corporation Street. In the tea room, there was a sort of compartment, a table for six between two large settles, quite secluded, and it was known as the railway carriage. This became a favorite place for us, and we changed our title to the Barovian Society after Barrow's Stores. Later, I was an editor of the School Chronicle, and I had to print a list of people who had gained various distinctions. So against the people in the list who were members, I put an asterisk. And at the bottom of the page by the asterisk, it said, also members of the TCBS, etc. 
It was a seven-day wonder what it stood for. <laughs> That's and amazing. I was pleased so, to find out this little bit of information that Barrows was actually started by Cadbury's. Cadbury was a Quaker family, and they were the ones who were significant in inventing chocolate candy. So oh. since I am a Quaker and since I am all but addicted to chocolate, um, I appreciate the connection. <laughs> so even a little deeper cut for you there. Absolutely. A little deeper cut. That's amazing. And so Barrows, was that a chain of stores? I think there, there were a couple, but it was, you know, it was a family, a family store okay, to begin with. It. And um, they were, they sold tea, they sold, you know, you could sit and have meals. Um, originally, these stores started off as, as being... Um, miniature like food stores and people mm -hmm. would buy and this was located of course in Birmingham um, but then they gradually moved into establishing themselves as a tea shop as you know sitting and drinking tea of an afternoon became a thing so that's my very limited understanding cribbed almost entirely from Wikipedia so yeah, right, fair enough. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it's it really interesting I mean you can't help but draw the parallels if you read a little bit about TCBS and, and Tolkien's involvement with his friends, you can't help but naturally draw the parallels to the Fellowship and the Fellowship of the Rings, and especially with Sam and, and Frodo and the bonds that, that were so tightly, uh, um, you know, the, the bonds that connected them so tightly. So can you talk a little bit about... Tolkien's personal experience as a member of the TCBS and what that might have meant to him? Sure, I got some thoughts. I mean, the first thing that popped into my head when you asked the question was, it's not accidental that there are four Hobbit friends who go off to war together. Mm. And yeah. I don't think people really think about that that much. Obviously, Tolkien provides us with background reasons for why there were four, but the resonance there is just quite remarkable to me. What they meant to him was encouragement from a very early age. You know, when you're a teenager mm. and you have unusual tastes in the things that are really important to you and you don't think anybody else shares them, when you finally find somebody who does, it there's just nothing like it. And so here were these four people who were quite different and had a lot of disagreements, but were able to hold together as friends, even in the midst of their disagreements. And they were the first to encourage him in his poetry and in his myth-making. There's one example when he sent off a sample of the earliest legendarium poem about the voyage of Erendil, which mm -hmm. was inspired by the Christ poem. And I'm not quite clear which one it was he sent it to, but the person wrote back and said, this is really great, what does it mean? And Tolkien's reply was, I don't know, I'll try to find out. <laughs> so even then, he was not doing a sort of a literary whatever. He was building his mythology, and he had three friends who were interested in it, who wanted to hear about it, who wanted him to do more. There's an incredibly moving letter, which I believe you folks mentioned in that episode, written by Rob Gilson to Tolkien, in which he says, if I should get scuppered tonight, yeah, I hope you will carry on all the right. things that we talked about and that we wanted to do. And golly, that's got to be just an incredible both motivation and weight um, carried with that grief of having lost half the fellowship, but in effect saying, okay, we're passing the standard to you to write about the things that were important to us, you know, art, music, um, what right. they called the good, however they interpreted that. 
and that that was fundamental to him, starting as I say from from his mid teens. And I think it's in a modern context, it's very easy to gloss over the strength of that bond that he was experiencing. You know, modern life moves very fast. We're very distributed. We can have very distant, con- we can be connected to people in very distant, distant ways. And here was a very intimate and close, uh, physically intimate uh, and intellectually intimate set of relationships for a, a young man who was orphaned and who was growing up in this uh, um, unique circumstance that he was. And so to find that companionship and that fellowship, especially on an intellectual level, I, I, that's, I, I, yeah, how do, you, how, how do we feel that in these years coming down from when he lived his life? And I think, yeah, we really look at the fellowship and we can feel what he felt. It was also a very spiritual connection. They were of different religions, the four of them, but they all agreed that this was a crucial part of the world and that the world was falling away from, you know, these different ways of talking about the unanswerable questions, the mystery, Mm. and wanted to restore that somehow to the world and to do that through their music one of them was a musician, through their art, another was a painter, through their writings. Several, a couple of them were, were writers, I believe. Fascinating. Well, Tolkien certainly accomplished something with that then, given that, yes. uh, you know, uh, not only the, the, the core books of, uh, you know, of Lord of the Rings, but then also with the Peter Jackson movies that spun out from him and now with this Amazon series. Um, and we can see people's... Uh, intensity in their reaction to that because there, uh, for as much as there is a flocking to amongst the fandom, there's also uh, some counter notes in there of people concerned about the, you know, the legacy and the, and, and are we hewing true enough to his vision or not? Um, it reminds me a lot of uh, uh, Monty Python, Life of Brian and, and that sort of his shoe, it's a sign, his left <laughs> shoe. Uh, I may be dating myself here with some no, of not our in listeners. the least, not in the least. Yeah. Remember, but, uh, you are all unique. We are all unique. <laughs> we are all unique. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing um, is, Tolkien was very much in a state of uniquity, if I may be allowed to make up the world, word, uh-huh. as a Roman Catholic. He was mm. very much in the minority, and his society and culture made pretty yes. clear that he knew this. Yes. And to be friends with people of these people in particular who were not all also Roman Catholics was even more extraordinary for him. And while there's a lot, there's reams written about how much or how little religion is present in Tolkien and how much Catholicism, of course, his own statements is it is a fundamentally Catholic work, but he was writing that to a Catholic priest. So he might not have said that, you know, to, um, you know, somebody for whom religion wasn't really all that crucial, but for them it was. And so that had to be an enormous sense of support. Um, There, according to Carpenter, there were a couple of older young Catholic students who, when Tolkien first came along, made sure that, you know, he would settle in and be okay. But King Edward's school was not a Catholic foundation. And, you know, if if you look at the fact that he's, he's orphaned, He's being raised by a Catholic. He marries a woman who's older than him. He delays his enlistment in the war. 
these are all other acts of othering or ways of being in in society that was uh, he's he's othered from all his companions. And if you look at hobbits, and I'm just making this up here as we're con- having a conversation, hobbits are others in the in this world of men and elves. They're these small of stature, unique. People don't really understand or, or know them, um, and yet the rate, the fate of the world rested on their shoulders. But you see, they didn't know that they were unusual. Uh-huh. They thought yes. they were the world, and everybody yes. outside were, were the weird ones, you know, or the distant right. ones, or ones that no sensible hobbit would concern themselves with, because <laughs> they were out there and we were here, and why in the world do you want to go and listen to the elves sing on New Year's Eve? You know, that just, right. you know, that's... That's a really strange thing to do. So, obviously, there were culture and social norms within hobbits as well. But they considered themselves to be the standard. And, you know, who among us can say that we don't do that, too? And and that's the the great thing about um, what literature and and science fiction and fantasy can do for us is, is that we can tell these stories about our own internal... You know, we can see ourselves in a way that we can't necessarily uh, see ourselves uh, in other things. And so it's a it's a really great reflection. And then that that's the truth that holds a story together over decades and decades and decades and retellings and republishings. And Tolkien was so skilled in that he deliberately removed overt references to religion. Yes. And succeeded so well that. When I told a pagan friend that he was Roman Catholic, she refused to believe me. (laughs) No, no, he's a pagan. I know he's a pagan. Look, this and this and this and this. And I'm like, trust me. (laughs) Right. He was able to be even, quote unquote, pagan friendly, though I don't know how he would have felt about that. But um, because he combined the love of nature with this ability to see the sacred in all things, which is a very Quaker concept, too. Um, people of all religious backgrounds or none can still be yes. touched by the truths that he is presenting in his story because they are they are human truths. Right. And for him, it was important that his creation be consistent with his understanding of the world, i.e. a Trinitarian view, as he put it. Right. And towards the end of his life, he was actually kind of worried that he had overstepped Mm. Not not too dissimilar from Aule, who who made the dwarves without Eru's uh, right. knowledge, supposedly. Although, of course, Eru knew what was going on, naturally. Right. <laughs> and that story was actually put in by Christopher. I don't think that that was written specifically, out specifically by Tolkien. It may be that he told that story to Christopher. But anyway, um, he was well, concerned that he had showed too much hubris. And this goes back right, to yeah. his early poem, Mythopoeia. I don't know if you know it, but if you don't, no, definitely get it and read it, because it's basically Tolkien's personal manifesto. We okay. make in the image in which we were made. Yes. We are creatures of a creator, and therefore we must create. And sometimes we do it very badly. Sometimes we misuse this, and yet... We still, as he said, keep the rags of lordship once we owned. Um, Though all the corners of the world we filled with elves and dragons and dared to build the seeds of dragons, I'm getting it wrong, dared to build the houses of gods, t'was our right, used or misused. That right has not decayed. We make still in the measure by which we're made. 
So he knew that creation was in our spiritual human DNA, if you will. He also right. had this strong sense all of his life that you could overstep, that you right. could take on this role of creator yourself and and seem to be interfering with, with you know, the rights of God, as he would have put it. And towards the end of his life, this is what led him to do a lot of the re-editing and, and, and reworking of his mythologies, which was really very sad, because um, he was facing the end of his life and presumably wondering what was going to happen when he faced his maker and judge, as he believed. Right. And so he began to look over all of his writings and, and say, okay, was I was I overstepping? You know, maybe I should make this more consonant with the knowledge of the of astronomy and the universe as we have it and get rid of the two trees and just have the sun and the moon there all the time, which would have absolutely killed it. Yeah. As far as most pages <laughs> are concerned. He he rewrote yeah. the first three chapters of The Hobbit to where I make it consonant with the Lord of the Rings in tone and style and you know, right. make it an epic instead of a fairy tale. And mm-hmm. He shared it out with a friend or two, and thank goodness they said, well, this is really good, but it's not The Hobbit. And so he dropped it. Right. But he had this, we could call it a religious conviction of our duty to to create in in the image of the creator deity, as he saw it. Right, right. And the TCBS held that basic concept (laughs) that they were called to create. And so it came to him very early, and it never really left him. And that's where, yeah, really, uh, the TCBS really reinforced that for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Possibly yeah, even inspired right. it. It's hard to say, really. I mean, where did yeah. these things come from? Yeah, well, yeah. We know where, yeah, one, where, one is that, where, where it came it, from. Chicken and egg. One place right. it came from was the name Eurandil in the uh, O antiphons of, of the Latin mass for, for um, Advent that were translated into um, Anglo-Saxon. And that's where he first found the name Eurendil. And oh, it, fascinating. I think of that as the leaf of his legendarium. You know, if you know the story Leaf by Niggle, that was the leaf caught on the wind that eventually became all this stuff we're talking about today. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there was a lot of power packed in that one word, but it took a Tolkien to find it and unpack it and, and bring it into yeah. being. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. I think we could, I, I had meant for us to just have a couple of moments uh, of, of chat and we're, <laughs> we've come very far down the road and I would um, certainly enjoy talking to you uh, again in the future. And I know my um, podcast partner, John, would absolutely love to have uh, some conversations with you as well. I'd be delighted. So maybe we can uh, uh, look forward to you uh, coming on the on the podcast again in the, in the not too distant future. It would certainly be a great pleasure. Marilyn R. Pukila, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and we will talk to you again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you. The Second Age Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondage at baldmove.com. For more Rings of Power content, subscribe to Dug Too Deep on your favorite podcast app. Ad-free versions of this and all other Bald Move podcasts can be yours by going to patreon.com slash baldmove. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening.